0: Welcome to this month's episode of the Doctors for the Environment Australia podcast, a podcast where we discuss topical issues related to the environment and health. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay our respect to elders past, present, and emerging. Our podcast is recorded all over Australia, and so we take this opportunity to ask people to reflect on the country they live on and the special places they value. Welcome to this month's episode of the Doctors for the Environment Australia podcast. I am Kaya. I'm one of the emergency registrars on the Sunshine Coast on Gubby Gubby Land, and I'm very excited that this episode I am joined by Dr. Bo Frigo. Hello. Would you like to introduce yes, yourself? Yes,
1: I'm happy to. So my <laughs> name is Bo. I am an um, unaccredited registrar in obstetrics and gynecology down on the Gold Coast. Um, on Ugambi land and I have been involved in the podcast for a while uh, and I am helping uh, fill in for Karin while she's taking a little bit of a break um, and we will be contributing probably for the next couple of podcasts which I'm really excited to be a little bit more hands-on in um, and I guess today's topic that we want to talk about before we get into the interview was specifically discussing the IPCC report um, which has been a monumental thing mm-hmm. that's kind of happened in the climate space over the past month. Um, and we thought it would be really important to kind of do a bit of a deep dive in and give people more of a idea of what it involves. Are you ready for it, Kaya?
0: I am so excited. I guess for people who are listening who might not be familiar with the IPCC, um, it's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and it's made up of 195 different countries. Um, And this report is essentially taken several thousand pages of research by hundreds of scientists and just created this really comprehensive understanding of the climate crisis as it stands currently.
1: Exactly. It really, I think, people need to understand that there really is no more authoritative piece of documentation out there that kind of captures uh-huh. the uh, climate change crisis and how it impacts people of all walks of life, and that it is such a collaborative effort. It's an extension of the UN. It involves so many countries around the world, and it really is sort of uh-huh. our one point of reference that gives us an indication about how much climate change is changing. Um, how it's affecting different communities around the world and Mm. provides a bit of a framework in terms of what we need to do as a global society to try and mitigate that change. And this specific report that's come out is sort of the sixth iteration of it since its existence. Um, and is really only a portion of it. It's the portion that specifically references all the latest scientific data around mm. how climate change has been evolving Love data over the past 10 years. Um, and it's come at a crucial time because when we've got the COP26 uh, conference happening in Glasgow in a couple of months, um, this uh. is going to be the piece of documentation that they will refer to when um, all of these countries around the world are going to be trying to come up with solutions uh, setting mm. new benchmarks and targets for how we we're gonna make these changes. So it's it's really kind of a critical piece of documentation. So I, that's why we really wanted to, to discuss it. Now, Kaya, what were some of the main takeaways that you got out of it when you kind of read through it or had some understanding about
0: it? Yeah, well, I guess I found that this report uses really, really strong language. So I think a lot of the previous reports I mean, there's been strong language as well, but it's sort of been, we strongly suggest this, or this really looks like it's happening. Whereas I feel in this report, the language is even stronger because the science we have now is really unequivocal. So it says things like, it is unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere, ocean and land. And that at this point in the science that there's no doubt whatsoever, humans are causing these problems. So I think that was one of the big takeaway points for me like how strong the language was um I think the report it doesn't have any like new science it's everything that we already knew up until this point and sort of everything that we've been experiencing and all the research that we've read this report just confirms that and it's a pretty depressing read I have to say um I guess it's we're trying to limit, obviously, to less than one point five degrees of warming, um, and the report really makes the case that it is achievable to do that by the end of the century. But to do that, we need to take action immediately, and it's the chances of that are slim, but it's not impossible at this point. What what were some of the really big things for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was very similar for me as well. I think you highlighted that you know the IPCC reports in the previous iterations have certainly uh, have been quite uh, persuasive in terms of co- creating the case that shows that you know climate change is undeniably occurring. It's undeniably occurring because of human intervention and human action. And that if we don't do anything to try and mitigate it, there's going to be sort of these significant global effects. Um, mm. I think there is a bit of sort of uh, conservativeness around saying to what extent that would happen um, and sort of the Mm. timeline in which that needed to happen. And I think that's such an important point is that, you know, because this is such a scientifically based article, it's not going to necessarily include a lot of these radical proclamations about small pieces of fringe evidence. This is truly Mm. a culmination of a significant body of evidence. And so I think Mm. that I agree with you. The drastic change between its last iteration, you know, seven years ago to this one is we have further evidence that confirms everything that we said before. But Mm. now we can't stress enough to you how much this is becoming dire and that we are running out of time to make the changes that we need to make to limit ourselves to that 1.5 degree of warming. Um, And so the report highlights a lot of sort of the current climate Havoc that we're experiencing at the moment that there is, you know, we're mm. still breaking heat records across uh, the Northern hemisphere this entire summer. We're seeing, you know, massive portions of the, you know, the Greenland um, ice caps and stuff that are melting that the Antarctica ice caps are breaking off huge chunks and the sea level is rising. Yeah. Like, There's so many things that you can point to as direct evidence that's currently happening. We can't no longer mm. say that climate change is a future problem, it's a current problem.
0: Absolutely. We're in, in
1: the middle of it right now. And as you mentioned, we're we have a small window of opportunity to kind of correct course um, and to try and not put ourselves into this tipping point of you know almost irreversible change and a and a and a cascade of these negative effects. Um, it's only if we do sort of very significant action in what they've mm. called the critical decade, which is this decade. Um, that if we don't do those things, that those we're going to see, unfortunately, things that we can't reverse. But what I also think is useful is that, you know, if like you said, when you first read it, you can have a very uh, significant sense of overwhelming <laughs> and thinking, oh, wow, how is this? This just doesn't sound good. And this sounds like you're almost inevitably going to end up in a, in a disastrous situation. Um, but what I think is also important that the report emphasizes is that every piece of action that we can do will have an impact and mm-hmm. every single degree of warming that we can limit will have significant benefit to this planet. And so you just have to keep thinking in that context of that we need to just keep mitigating that to every possible angle that we can um, in order to, because it is going to have a, it is going to make a difference.
0: Yeah, there's some really great data in there um, by looking at, for example, the differences we'd experience if we increase the global temperature by 1.5 degrees versus if we increase it by 2 degrees. And so if we increase things by 1.5 degrees, looking at extreme heat events... Currently, they happen five times more frequently than they have ever happened historically. If we increase it by 1.5 degrees, it'll happen nine times as often. If we increase by two degrees, it'll be 14 times as often. And so I think a lot of that stuff is really interesting when you look at Australia, for example, particularly I'm in Queensland. The heat waves here are a real problem in summertime, like seeing a lot of patients come into emergency with heat stroke. And so when you start to think about by changing or limiting the amount of degrees we increase by even just a fraction, you're going to improve the outcomes locally and then globally as well.
1: And I don't think people often realize just how close we are already to that 1.5 to pre-industrial eras. Like we're already over a degree from where we were then. And so this this cutoff of 1.5 is not far away. And so that's why it emphasizes so much that this really is the critical decade, because by the end of this decade, if we don't make these drastic changes, we are going to hit that target. And then beyond that, you know, some of the resources that I was looking at was specifically referencing sort of the Australian context of this, as you were mentioning. And, um, you know, Australia has been in the media a lot recently in terms of its, uh, we'll say, lack thereof commitment to um, changing their benchmarks. Um, yes. to kind of uh, address the new evidence and sort of uh, this new sort of call to action. You know, when this IPCC report came out and some of the recent negotiations, a lot of countries changed their targets in terms of their mm. emission reductions and things like that over the next, you know, five to ten years. And unfortunately, Australia was quite silent in that front. Mm. Um, and that's been incredibly disappointing. I think it's worth knowing that, you know, Australia currently doesn't have a net zero target. Um, in terms of the point where they will reach sort of net zero emissions. And, you know, there's different opinions about what Australia needs to do. I specifically reference, you know, the Climate Council, um, because I do find them to be a fairly reliable resource in terms of, you know, setting benchmarks and that they are a science-based organization. Mm. And their conclusion from the IPPC report was that Australia needs to reduce their emissions by 75% below their 2005 (gasps) levels by 2030, and to be net zero by 2035 (laughs) Which is incredibly (laughs) ambitious. Um, I love it. If we could get there, I would be incredibly happy. Um, Totally. But I think, you know, with any target, you need to aim for something. And any Mm. step that you make towards that target uh, is going to give you some beneficial reward. So I think, you know, don't get too caught up in the number. But what we need to be very acutely aware of is that we need drastic change. And we yep. need it to happen now, not in 10 years from now.
0: Totally, totally. And I think a, an important thing to note is that this report is a very scientific report and that there will be further parts of it that will come out in 2022 that look at specifically the human impacts of this and how to respond. Mm. Um, So that will be something to look forward to next year. But I guess in the meantime, the way that people can potentially use this report um, is there's a really great summary for policymakers that you can send through um, to your local government representative and maybe ask them, what are you going to do about this new information that's going to be affecting your community? Um, and the other thing I thought was really great is on the IPCC website, they have an atlas. I don't know if you've seen this. You can go on mm. and you can change all the parameters and have a look at what, like specifically where you live, what it's going to be like in this amount of time, like how hot it's going to be, how much rainfall is going to be, how many days is it going to be above 35 degrees Celsius? Um, and you can take that information and, go to your local council or your local community groups or hang it up on your community board and just be like, hey, this is what's going to be affecting my local community here. What should we do about it now?
1: Exactly. It's about arming yourself as a as either a DA member or someone who's just listening to this podcast. Every individual has the opportunity to utilize this information that the IPCC has, you know, painstakingly accumulated and has eloquently laid out for us to then bring to people of power, policymakers, et cetera, to say, look, this is the data. This is what Mm -hmm. the evidence is. There's no refuting this anymore. Um, What's your plan? How are we getting ourselves out of this? And really encourage them to either work with yourself or with other people who can help facilitate those kind of changes because we're we need to enact those changes soon. Yeah, certainly over the past couple of weeks, getting a bit more of an acute understanding of what the IPCC report is is trying to get us to understand, it's just made me so much more acutely aware of those specific issues affecting Australia and certain parts of Australia mm-hmm. where you know, biodiversity is affected where mining and local communities are affected and things like that. And that's why Um, I think you and I both thought it would be a great opportunity to bring our special guests on um, for the second half of this podcast, specifically focusing on the Tarkine, which is an area that has great sort of environmental and cultural importance to this country. And I'm really looking forward to hearing from the two of them about what their experiences with it have been like and just seems so relevant to what we've been talking about with the IPPC report.
0: Absolutely. And I think for anyone that has been listening to this podcast for a while, usually there's some funky, jazzy music at the start of the podcast. But this episode, there has been a nature recording at the start. And that is from the Tarkine itself, which is this incredible forest down in Tasmania we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, but that recording is from album called Time for the Tarkine, and it's a nature recording by Andrew Skiok and Sarah Kosciuk. This episode includes some conversation about non-violent direct action and And as such, it's important to make clear that people cannot undertake direct action in Doctors for the Environment Australia's name. The actions and views of our delightful guests in this episode are their own and do not represent those of DEA when talking about direct action. Now is probably a good time to get into the interview with our special guests today, which I'm super excited about. We have Dr. Lydia Birch here and also her sister, Hannah Birch, to talk to us about the Tarkine and what's been going on down in Tasmania. So welcome, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us.
1: Um, I guess for people who don't know who you are, do you want to just give a little bit of a brief intro about how you kind of came to be involved in DEA and what your experience is?
2: Yeah, sure. Sure. All right. Um, so I'm Lydia. I'm an emergency registrar based in Nipaluna, Hobart. Um, I've had a strong interest in public and global health since I was a med student. Basically, I became involved with my global health group with answer Global Health, which is how I met Kaya. And then through that, I became a DEA member. Um, that's how I met Bo. Um, after learning about climate change being the greatest global health risk of this century. I guess over the last sort of three, four years, I've been more involved locally with the takaina Tarkine campaign with lobbying, fundraising um, and advocacy work and just more fun stuff in my spare time. I'm into trail running, hiking and drawing and happily I've been able to do all these things in the Tarkine for various like fundraising efforts and campaigns.
0: Yeah amazing Hannah do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself
3: sure um so my name's Hannah I'm a medical student in Hobart um, I've just passed my final exam so that's Woo-hoo! good um, <laughs> congratulations yeah. so I'm hopefully going to be a doctor um, in Hobart uh next year um and I might cool. at some point be working with Lydia down in the emergency department so that might be exciting <laughs> um so- So, yeah, I guess I've been sort of – I sort of cared about the environment for most of the degree and been involved with a few different groups. Like I've done stuff with DEA before we – Lydia and I were involved with the team that did the IDEA conference down in uh, Hobart a couple of years ago pre-COVID. That was a good time. (laughs) Um. (laughs) Those were the days. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, sort of done some stuff with the Global Health Society um, at the Utah School of Medicine as well. And uh, in the last few years also gone in some stuff with the Bob Brown Foundation and their Takaina Tarkine campaign. Done a lot of that stuff with Lydia, but um, we've also split off and done some different stuff because she runs marathons (laughs) and I um, (laughs) don't, so (laughs) there's the opportunity for some – divergence there uh, and um, so yeah I guess I've been doing some stuff with the Bob Brown Foundation for the last couple of years and during this year particularly when there was sort of a big campaign around one of the forests in the
1: timeline tar- mm, That's amazing. Um, I actually kind of want to start with a bit of a personal question a bit of a, uh, a divergence even to start off with just because it's the first family deal that we've had on the podcast. Um, and just wondering, um, obviously you both have a really sort of strong connection to the, to the natural world and, and, uh, passion about, you know, global health and the environment and health. Is that something that was like deeply founded in your family? Is everybody else in your family is kind of involved in that kind of stuff? How do you think that came about?
3: <laughs> I I think we've both got really nice parents. Like, um, and we've got really, we've got, we're two of four girls in our family, and the other girls are like fantastic uh, humans as well. So I think we've both been really lucky to have just like really awesome people around us, which probably does help one feel like a bit of compassion towards other things outside of themselves. So Mm. probably that's where like the sort of, Caring about other things came from, but in terms of environment, I think, yeah, we our dad's not exactly an environmentalist, um, which <laughs> makes us some fun conversations, but he's coming around and yeah, slowly, um, slowly, <laughs> yeah. Our mum's like a really big bushwalker, so we probably both got our bushwalking from,
0: our mm, yeah, mm. yeah. I think honestly, it's hardest. It's the best practice talking about the environment and climate change to your family members that are not necessarily mm. on board because they are the hardest hardest to sway. I think if I could sway my father, I could sway anyone. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. And they're probably the people that <laughs> you try it. the hardest with because you know that, you know, no matter what you say and no matter differences you have, mm-hmm. you're still family at the end of the day, mm-hmm. and so there's still always going to be, you know, that commonality that always keeps you together. So, I certainly find that I I sometimes push mm. against some of my own family members more than anyone in terms of their beliefs and understandings of, of the science mm. and stuff. And so that I, I'm always curious by that, about how siblings kind of can be so similar in some ways, it seems like, and have your own little niches, but kind of yeah. share a similar path is really neat. So sorry, I just wanted to ask that for my own personal knowledge. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, it's definitely a good question. I think we also <laughs> should do a shout out to our grandmother, who is probably our biggest supporter. Um, she's
3: actually, <laughs> yes. she's a big environment.
2: Grandma Birch, yeah, yeah, Grandma McDonald, actually, from the other side, yeah, and the Scottish she, side, the Scottish side, and she's probably our uh, biggest supporter. I think she was incredibly amazing. proud when Hannah got on the front lines. So <laughs> <laughs> I think if she could, she'd be out there herself. So yeah, a shout That's out so to her. Yeah, she, my kind.
0: She should join knitting Nannas. <laughs> I think she'd love that. Actually,
1: <laughs> well, anyways,
0: back back awesome. to the matter Alrighty. at hand.
1: Which is talking about the tar- <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Um And that's why we both have brought you we've brought you guys in to have the chat with us about it because we know it's obviously it's a passion project for you guys in a lot of ways, and you've kind of become very sort of deeply familiar with the campaigns that surround it and the issues that are evolving with it. I for myself have never been mm-hmm. fortunate enough to visit the Tarkine. when we um, were down for the Hobart conference. I pretty much just got the weekend off and that was the only thing I could really do. But for people who've never been, Tell us about what is so special about the Tarkine.
3: So um you've hit the nail on the head there with the difficulty of the Tarkine which is that it's really long drive from most people's entry point into Tasmania which is usually Hobart. So it's you know it's probably a 5 or 6 hour drive up to the northwest of the state so literally the opposite mm. end of the state to Hobart and it's sort of as talked about as like the largest intact tract of um, temperate rainforest in Australia. So if you go there, you're just sort of driving through these beautiful old misty forests. It's really uh, incredible. And then I guess the problem is that if you go just 200 metres off the road in on a lot of these roads, uh, you'll just drive into clear fell logged um, stretches of really just decimated rainforest and so sometimes you can think that it looks pretty good just by driving through it but there's a lot of areas thankfully most of them on the edges of the area that are, have been logged but there's still a huge amount of rainforest that needs to be protected
0: well, i was doing a bit of reading about the Tarkine and i was reading that it's part of the remnant forest from when gondwana land still existed which is just insane to me of how old it Whoa. is and it's as big as the Daintree as well. It's it's just crazy. I think everyone, I mean, a lot of people seem to know about the Daintree in Queensland, mm. but Tarkine is, like, not really on a lot of people's radars in Australia.
2: Mm. Yeah, well, even um, having lived in Nibluna, Hobart for you know, more than a decade now. I don't think I'd been out to the Tarkine until four years ago or so. I decided to go out when I was was an intern, actually. And I was interested in climate change and sort of interested in a sort of abstract sense in forestry issues and deforestation. But I hadn't actually been out there myself. And I think part of me... Well, there is a lot of greenwash around from uh, the forestry industry here. And part of me was like, oh, I'm sure the practices aren't as bad as they used to be. And, you know, there's not Mm. as much clearfelling as (laughs) they Mm. used to do. But you go out there and firstly, you walk into these amazing like ancient Gondwana land rainforests and it is genuinely Mm. incredible and breathtaking. And then as Hannah says, like down the road, there'll be sections of clearfell where you'll see these, you know, stumps of these massive hundred year old trees that have just been... Um, And unfortunately, the, the forestry practices are still really, I mean, things that really shouldn't be acceptable in this day and age. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people, even people living in Tasmania are not aware of that because it is a little bit tucked away and, you know, you're not seeing it right in front of your eyes. So, yeah, and there is a lot of, a lot of greenwash from our forestry industry here about, how good their practice is, where it's really it's, you know, very old school and certainly not best practice at all. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I guess we've touched on it a little bit, um, about what's going mm. on there at the moment. But obviously the Tarkine has had a like relatively there's been many, many years where there's been different mm-hmm. mining companies coming in and trying to do different things there and there's been various points where the community has risen up and tried to push back and has succeeded in pushing back on certain things and the government's been helpful at points and not helpful at other points what's going on currently like why do people care about the Tarkine again so much right now Mm. so as you touched
2: upon um, the Tarkine's been under threat for a long time and there are various threats to the Tarkine Um, I guess the most recent campaign that both of us have been involved in is the campaign against the um, MMG tailings dam, which is essentially a proposal to dump toxic tailings material from um, this mine that's in nearby Rosebury. And essentially the proposal involves clearing around 140 hectares of rainforest for the actual dam site, but then they'd also clear it, you know, like in total 285 hectares of rainforest, so they can then pump, I think it's 25 million cubic metres of waste product across the Pyman River, so across this beautiful river, mm. into this tailing dam. And it's in this really beautiful area of forest that both Hannah and I have been into, which has been recognised as containing, I think, seven out of the total ten possible world heritage values, and it's been identified as being a biodiversity hotspot. So that's why we're... We've been campaigning specifically against this proposal
0: at the moment.
1: Mm. So Lydia, you were talking about specifically that there's really sort of multiple components to how each potential project can affect um, the Tarkine. Um, do you want to kind of elaborate that into a little bit more detail around what are the all the elements that people don't really think about when they see a project like this get proposed and how it's going to impact a natural site like this?
2: Hmm, that's a really good question. Um, I guess this proposal is sort of symptomatic of like this broader disregard for the role that forests actually play in our planet's health essentially. So, and it is kind of symptomatic of this like broader disregard from our government for the actual importance of these sites. So we do know that um, forests are really important carbon sinks and we also know that you know biodiversity is like um, intimately linked with human health obviously the individual proposals are really worrying but also we do need to think about you know the general direction we're heading in and that in this era of climate crisis and biodiversity crisis do we really want to be decimating these you know few remaining tracks of intact amazing forest which is so important for not only for its own value, but also for human health
1: more broadly. Well, and I think it's also, as history has shown, a lot of these, you know, mining, logging, et cetera, companies that, you know, facilitate these projects are not often known to be the bastions of um, following the rules and sticking to environmental protections and all that kind of stuff to facilitate their work. Um, which then plays into a whole host of other issues. Hannah, are you familiar much with in terms of other sort of issues that has been happening in the past in terms of companies wanting to use the Tarkine for different projects and how that's played out?
3: Yeah, um, so I guess the Bob Brown Foundation has been campaigning for the Takina Tarkine for a few years, and they've had a really quite successful campaign. So they've managed to chase a lot of logging operations out of the Tarkine and that's been done with blockades, so just holding space and also with sort of their broader campaigns. So I guess in that particular regard, they have been pretty successful. There's sort of ongoing threats from things like mining. Um, There's a a mine just up the road from the site where the Tailings Dam is uh, proposed to be uh, that was started up again. So the Bob Brown Foundation are trying to campaign against any new mines in the Tarkine because a lot of for example a lot of the rivers in that area have been really destroyed by mining like there's a river that Lydia and I would often go and swim in but you can't drink the water in it it's you know it's this beautiful river going through this amazing rainforest and the water's been poisoned by heavy metals and so I guess those kinds of threats are pretty scary and the other one which we haven't really talked about so far is um the threat from off-road vehicles in on the sort of coastal part of Tarkine. So that's an area that's really sacred to the Tasmanian Aboriginal community, because a lot of hut sites and you know areas where people would gather, and there's a lot of tools and artifacts around those areas that unfortunately sort of the local Northwest community there's a really big passion for sort of off-road vehicle use in that area. And so they'll sort of drive over Mm. these places that are really sacred to Tasmanian Aboriginal people. And I guess with any environmental movement, we really need to be thinking about how a lot of the environmental destruction that's occurred since this uh, land was colonised, you know, we really need to interrupt that process and look to First Nations people for you know, how they managed this land for thousands of years and it was in such fantastic condition when white settlers came here Um, and we just need to bear that in mind when we're doing any kind of environmental campaign and try to look to them for solutions here and how they think their land should be managed. And I think the Bob Brown Foundation is trying to do that. There's always room for improvement, but I think they are, you know, reaching out to the Tasmanian Aboriginal community and looking to them for direction on how they would like us to advocate on their um, on their causes and things that are quite sensitive mm. to them. Mm.
0: Beautifully said. Something else that we haven't touched on yet about the Tarkine is it's astonishing to me that it's not protected, that it's not a heritage site as of yet, and it's something that the government could do. What kind of like why... Is it a place that should be heritage listed?
2: Yeah, well, it has actually been independently assessed. Even like as far back as 2012, um, the Australian Heritage Council made a report and they recommended national heritage listing of the Dekina I Now, their process for going through that is they look at these various different values, which are sort of environmental and cultural values. And I'm not all over across all of the details of each of the values, but they've sort of said mm. it's it's up there. It means so I think it's seven out of the ten values that the World Heritage Organisation look at. It's not mm. just like a few rogue hippies calling for this. Like this is something that like independent panels have looked at. It's been recommended again and again. And I think it is really incredibly short-sighted that our government and these companies think that it has more value as a one-off extractable resource than the value mm. that it actually clearly has as an ongoing amazing like, biodiversity hotspot and you know this yeah. gondwan and remnant so I think mm. I think it is just one of those cases where we sort of know that it should be protected and the experts do recognise that it should be protected. Unfortunately, there's a bit of that lag with kind of translating that into reality, which Mm. is, you know, where foundations like the Bob Brown Foundation and other organisations which are holding this space come in. I guess the way I think of it is that with the direct action side of things is that we're holding the space until such a time as our public policy actually catches up with the evidence, which we've actually yeah. had for a very long time now.
0: Yeah, and I guess it's a, it's a really wonderful opportunity for the government to step up, particularly mm. Bo and I earlier were discussing the newest IPCC mm. report. Um, and so it seems like a very fitting time for the Australian government to start having a bit of a serious think about protecting these kinds of forests. But I guess at the same time, there's a few different endangered species like Tasmanian yeah, devils and different owls in the mm. forest. And I guess it's surprising that nothing's been done to this point, given that we have the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Act Act. Already in place that should be securing these kinds of lands.
1: I think it's it's the consistent issue that we have with a lot of these sort of natural resource spaces across this country is that there's a constant debate between two sides wanting to use that space for you know its economic value mm. um, and sort of advancing Australia's economic growth versus acknowledging that it mm. has. A significant environmental health and cultural value and that value only maintains Mm. itself if it is maintained. If you remove that as a resource then that no longer can can serve its purpose and its value and so I think that's where public opinion has to change because I think for the longest time the public Mm. opinion outweighed the economic value of something versus its environmental health and cultural value. Whereas I think now, when we have the new reports like the IPCC and referencing just how critical it is for us to maintain lanes like this um, because of its carbon capacity, for its biodiversity, for its capacity to improve the health of people just by being in its presence, then you know that's yeah. where you can start to hopefully start to change people's minds and shift it more to a no, this is a value in maintaining it um, than it is to use it. The governments don't respond to anything other than public pressure. And so it's not until the public really steps up and says, no, this is a value of ours that we maintain it, that you start getting that action. Because as all of us have seen working in the health realm and being around sort of science, is that unfortunately not everybody listens to the science. And it's not until politicians know that potentially it's a hot topic election issue that they step forward and make those changes, unfortunately. And so that's kind of why um, the Bob Bowden Foundation and DEA and other things like that step forward to try and get people more engaged and involved in that space because it's not until people take it seriously that it changes. But maybe we can actually move on from that. So Lydia and Hannah, you guys are both healthcare professionals or at least very soon to be healthcare professionals. Why, and we we face this all the time working with DEA and other organizations, what is it about the Tarkine that... People in the healthcare industry should care about?
2: Well, I think there's a lot of reasons to care about it. Um, I think it has a lot of value, like as we discussed, obviously all of us care a lot about the climate crisis that we're currently living in. And, you know, we know that we need to be protecting these lands on that basis to keep carbon out of our atmosphere. So we need to be retaining these landscapes and not decimating them. So there's that side to it. I guess there's the health dimension of the logging does have the capacity to actually increase bushfires and increase the risks to communities. So particularly these regrowth forests, um, they are more Mm. flammable than the old temperate rainforest which you know obviously can burn but often it actually is a bit of a buffer whereas the regrowth and plantation forest there is evidence around that being more vulnerable to bushfires and all of the many health impacts that those have on communities you know the smoke air pollution mental health impacts of those so there's that dimension to it Um, we also know that biodiversity and is really important for human health and also just having these spaces to um, be able to be in. We know about the value of green spaces and to human health as well. And I think the other reason that I became involved in this is trying to find things that I could actually do locally. I was really concerned about climate change and then then like the more I thought about it and the more I... Um, read about it the more concerned i became about deforestation and it is an issue that i can actually act on locally here in Mm. tasmania and you know and even in australia it is something that we can do locally and it's a really easy low-hanging fruit in some respects that we can retain Mm. you know obviously the climate crisis requires us to take action on multiple fronts But this is just a really simple, almost a no brainer one that we should retain the ancient forests that we have and we shouldn't be logging them.
0: Absolutely. And then for doctors that are interested in getting involved, can you kind of talk us through some of the ways that people can help, Mm -hmm. whether they are in Tasmania or whether they are... On the mainland? Yeah, sure. Well, I might jump
2: in and then Hannah can answer it as well. I guess there are there's a whole spectrum of ways in which people can be involved, depending on, you know, what your skill set is, what your availability is, um, how much you want to get involved. Um, obviously at one end there's the attending blockades and that sort of thing. Some of the things I've done with my kind of DEA hat on is lobbying of politicians, um written opinion pieces for our local newspaper and last year Mm. we wrote an open letter to our premier we got 250 Tasmanian doctors to sign that and it was calling for an end to native forest logging in Tasmania so I think those are really Mm. important things that as doctors you know we can potentially speak on these issues and have people listen to us because we are offering a different voice and I guess we do have that potentially trusted role in the community and, you know, people do know that we are interested in the evidence and advocating for evidence-based policy. So I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. Then there's various organisations involved on the ground. Um, The Bob Brown Foundation is one that we've personally been involved with. Again, there's a whole range of ways people can support. Um, You know, there's obviously financial support is one way if you – um, have perhaps access to that resource, but don't have the ability to actually get into the tar line yourself. And then we've been involved in various—you um, know—I've um, run an ultra marathon in the tar line to raise some money for oh my it. God. <laughs> <laughs> for it, uh, you know, sold some bits of artwork and exhibitions and that sort of thing. Um, and then I guess the other end of the spectrum is actually non-violent direct action in the forests which is another option Mm. yeah which hannah could probably speak about a little bit more
3: yeah so i mean obviously um things like going to a blockade uh, for a lot of people that doesn't sound very appealing um the one thing I would say is that I generally, I guess it depends if you're introverted or extroverted. I think I'm quite extroverted, but I always have a fantastic time when I go out into the forests on these blockades because everyone is so lovely and they're all people who are really passionate about the environment. And there's just people from so many different walks of life there. The food is always fantastic. So... Like it's almost like going on a little holiday for me when I go out there. Most of the time I'm just reading my book and, you know, doing a bit of drawing and um, sleeping under these, you know, they've got these amazing tents and some of the blockades I've gone to that are sort of elevated off the ground. So you can sleep up in these little rainforest canopy kind of tents. And uh, I just have such a fantastic time when I'm there So that's probably the main way that I'm involved, but I guess it's really important to like honor yourself and your personal preference for how you engage with this stuff. I'm well aware that going out to these places, a isn't an option for a lot of people who are time poor or have young children or things like that. But if you are the kind of person who would enjoy something like that, I can highly, highly recommend it. And most of the time, you know, obviously with the tailings dam um, this year, there's been sort of a elevated intensity in those spaces because people are doing non-violent direct action and getting arrested and things like that. So that obviously that does change the dynamic a bit. But in general, it's still a really, you know, supportive environment. And there's – in Tasmania we're very fortunate. I know this isn't the case in some places like Victoria, but – You're on public land when you're in these forests and so a lot of these times when Bob Brown Foundation is just holding space, uh, there's no chance of any arrest, there's no plans for direct action and it's simply just holding that space, being in those forests, seeing what we're there to protect and there's... Um, You know, anyone can be involved with that potentially. There's no way that anyone who goes there like has to be involved in nonviolent direct action. It just is not an expectation if you show up at one of those places. You know, for example, I've met doctors in these blockades and some of them, you know, they're not interested in in doing the nonviolent direct action, but they're fantastic support. There's a lot of other roles like cooking and making sure people are well looked after when they're up there and just general logistics like finding firewood um so yeah (laughs) there can be a really great place to just do a little bit and you know if everyone just does a little bit when they're up there you end up with these camps that can spend 400 days in the forest and run smoothly and we're making like apple crumble for dessert kind of so yeah i think it's being actually on the blockade is a really fantastic experience i definitely feel really lucky to be able to go up there because the other thing is sometimes if you're away from that forest it's hard to remember why we care about it but if you actually go and spend days in the forest particularly the sumac blockade and the pyman blockade which lydia and i have both spent time on both of them are areas where the bob brown foundation went in there just as they were starting to log and shut down the operation. So some Mm. people would have locked onto machines and then the forestry people left. And so then they just occupied that space to stop um, further logging happening. So in both of those places, there's an area that has been clear-felled and it's just incredible to see the transition between that and then, you know, if you walk 10 metres out of the clear-fell, you're back into these giant trees and tree ferns and this incredible rainforest and i think there's Mm. nothing like that to actually make you realize how important that kind of work is and make you really feel like there's a reason that you're there yeah
1: Yeah, i really love how you worded that Hannah, about having to honor yourself and because it whenever it's a conversation that kaya have all the time and i think a lot of people who kind of work as doctors or work in healthcare constantly have to juggle is the idea of how what kind of advocacy are you really going to play Um, because we probably more than most professions have to consider how we're perceived in terms of our own job security in terms of the way that because we do often work for the government as government employees working in public health care but also having to balance that with our own gut and what we think feels right and what we think we want to do and I guess we always have to because this is a Doctors for the Environment Australia podcast we Have to say that, you know, Doctors of the Environment Australia doesn't officially condone any direct action, but we are all individuals and we all have uh, our own individual minds and thoughts about what we think makes the most sense for us in terms of the way that we want to participate in advocacy. Going with what works for you and what you feel like is the most value you can bring to the movement is what's important. And so I think the way you said that is beautiful. I think people can often become critical of each other in the movement about who's doing more, who's doing less, who's contributing, you know, in what ways. And I think, Lydia, I think you said this as well, it, the whole spectrum matters. You need people kind of doing every aspect of that kind of advocacy work to really drive change. Um, and so I think that's where we kind of have the benefit of being people with a bit of influence. Um, who are good communicators for the most part and uh, have the capacity for you know, empathy and change that makes us good drivers of that kind of stuff. So I think it's, it is essential and I think we all collectively feel like the more of our profession that gets involved in this kind of stuff, the better.
3: One point I was going to make is that you know, the logging industry, the native forest logging industry in Tasmania isn't actually, like, it's subsidized by mil- with millions of dollars every year. And it's really not benefiting Tasmania as a whole. And particularly like these communities that have jobs in this area at the moment, there needs to be like a, a long term plan for just transition for them. And I guess like a lot of the doctors who are involved, particularly the ones I've met in Tasmania, are uh, very, you know, passionate about rural communities and a lot of them serve these rural communities but they can see that these destructive industries, there's no long-term future for these communities that rely on Mm. jobs in this industry. And the government needs to have a plan for how to transition the workers Mm. out of those Mm. industries and without destroying their livelihoods. Mm. And so I think doctors who work in these communities can be big advocates for that.
0: I guess we've covered a lot of really great stuff so far. Is there... Any resources, Hannah and Lydia, that you'd recommend that listeners go and check out if they're particularly interested in the Tarkine or what's been going on down there?
3: Uh, So I've put one uh, resource as something that I found really useful um, when I was just starting out in getting to know what the Tarkine campaign was about. And that was a documentary made by Patagonia a couple of years ago and featured in it is... uh, really nice GP who works mm. in Smithton which is a little town you know a town that's historically had a lot of families completely dependent on industries like logging and mining and yet she was a part of the Bob Brown Foundation's campaign and appearing publicly in this documentary speaking out against yeah. what's been going on in that area so I think that story I found really uh, inspirational mm. and mm. so that documentary is called uh, to kind Yeah, I think I watched that actually
2: before the first time I went into the Tarkine. Um, Nicole Anderson, who's featured in that GP, is an absolute legend and a really amazing Mm. advocate for the Tarkine. And certainly it was one of the reasons that I moved from, you know, just having this like abstract kind of, you know, following the campaign a little bit, being a bit interested to actually going into the Tarkine myself. And I guess from actually being in that space and seeing these amazing forests. That probably did really spur me on to become more involved because I think, well, I've had a touch upon a few times. Like, it when you actually see these places, you do realise how completely short-sighted and ridiculous it is that we are even comprehending that, you know, they have more of a role to play as wood chips than, you know, as they are <laughs> than as intact standing forest. So... Yeah, I think that's a fantastic documentary and a really good place to start.
0: Particularly on that point there, I was listening to an interview with Bob Brown about the Tarkine earlier today, Mm. and he made a really great point that so many of our politicians are really happy to go and visit areas that fracking is going on or mines, and they're happy Mm. to pose there with their hard hats, but they never go into the rainforest to see what that's all about. So that would be incredibly valuable, I think.
3: I was just thinking about mentioning that depending on the situation with COVID, there's uh, fundraising events that the Bob Brown Foundation runs in Mm -hmm. Takina Tarkine on an annual basis. So some of them include like the Takina Trail, which is a marathon event which people run. Uh, to raise money for the protection of that area, and Lydia has run in it. But for anyone who can't run, like myself, there's lots of roles such as cooking food and yeah. um, looking after these poor people who've just run a ridiculous amount of kilometres. Does it have to, a to be an ultra?
2: I think that's a shorter one as no, well. No, no. There's a there's a twenty
3: six <laughs> kilometre. Uh, race. <laughs> yeah. Year. yeah So yeah. that's always great. And there's also things like Art for Tekina, another weekend yeah. in the Tarkine. Yeah, yeah. That events that people can mm-hmm. get involved with. And
2: BioBlitz is another great one that the Bob Brown Foundation runs as well, where you go out um, with scientists um, as like citizen scientists and do surveys of the Tarkine, which is oh, cool. really cool. You get to see there's just amazing animals out there. There's, you know, heaps of mm. endangered. Species. There's masked owls. There's you know wedge-tailed eagles. There's um, there's quolls. There's devils. There's the uh, freshwater crayfish, which is our personal favorite. Oh, yeah. The one that we're always like looking out for when we go swimming. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's um, and that's a really great way to actually see the biodiversity and to kind of touch firsthand and. Yeah, there's heaps of ways to help out with that.
1: All right. Well, we'll probably wrap things up there. But thank you both so much for giving up your time to have a chat to us about the tar I think it's, um, it's been obviously a hot topic, not just in Tasmania, but across the country for a number of years now. Um, but I think the actual sort of intimate details around what's happening there, most people are actually not familiar with. Like you said, Lydia, it's kind of a peripheral thing that we all as climate advocates know that it's something we care about. Um, but in terms of what exactly is happening there and what movements are going on is really important. And I think having two people like yourselves who've been so connected to the movement for the past little while now and giving us kind of a, an insider look into what it's been like um, and how people can help, I think, is incredibly valuable. So thanks so much for being a part of this episode.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having us. and. Putting up with my very hazy night shift brain.
1: <laughs> no, you did very well.
0: <laughs> thank you so much, guys.
1: And I think that concludes another episode of the DA podcast. Um, I want to thank Kaya for allowing me to be her counterpart in this episode. It's been wonderful to have a conversation with you and some of our friends from Tasmania and oh, um such we'll joy. make sure that uh, all the resources that we talked about um in this episode will be included in the episode notes if you want to take a look and get more information you're more than welcome to um and stay tuned for another episode of our podcast next month
0: Woohoo! catch you next time thank you so much bo and thank you for everyone that's been tuning in this month see ya take care